Amen. You guys can grab a seat. Kiddos K through five, you guys are dismissed to go hang out with Mr. Ricky in the back. If we have not met yet, my name is Gabe. I'm one of the elders here, the primary teaching elder. Um, and if you're new, welcome. We're so grateful that you're here. Uh, if you have more questions about us or what we do or how we operate, the, you can meet us right there at the Next Steps banner uh, right after the gathering. We'd love to answer any questions you have, talk to you, get to know you a little bit. Um, so come talk to us there. Church involvement team, thank you guys so much for breakfast at the branch. It was fantastic. Yes, thank you, team. That chicken biscuit was great. I genuinely have a rule of thumb that I don't eat before I preach, um, because typically when you eat, things come back up. Um, so if something does happen to come back up, church involvement team, it's your fault. Sound good? Um, all right, so Joshua is where we're going to be. It's where we've been. Um, and today we're going to cover nine chapters. You heard it right, nine chapters. So straight out the gate, I'll make you a deal. You ready? Uh, last week, Dylan, where's Dylan? Dylan Richards, there he is, preached a killer sermon on giving and the importance of giving, the biblical outlines for giving. So here's the deal. Um, the ushers are going to go ahead and come forward and pass the offering baskets. If you guys give the amount that's in my head, I'll preach the shorter version. If not, we're going to exegete the entirety of the nine chapters and you'll be here through dinner. Sound good? Yeah. All right, uh, ushers come ahead and come down. Uh, just kidding. No, it, it's going to be good. There's just some, so much importance here that I want to get to, uh, but I'm, I'm just excited about it. Uh, so a, as way of introduction, let me just tell a quick story about my daughter because it drives me crazy and I love her all the while. Uh, my third is named Emerson. She's just, she's just Emerson. Anyone that knows Emerson, there's just, it's just Emerson. And more often than not, I've given her clear instructions. Hey, Amy, go clean your room. Okay, pretty clear instructions, go clean your room. Five minutes later, I'll walk into, and she's just sitting there playing. And it's not like the playing like, oh man, dad called me. It's the, hey dad, you wanna play? I'm like, Emmy, I, I told you to clean your room. Oh yeah, yeah. So on all those environments, I'll have to stop and say, Emerson, what is it that you heard me say that you think that I just wanted you to come play in your room? And nine times out of 10, she just completely forgot. Uh, or maybe another example to pick on Dylan. I, I complimented him, now I'm gonna pick on him. Um, I am a vision caster dreamer. I just love to externally process anyone else. Yeah, no, okay. Thank you, thanks Anna, one, one person. So um, early on as Dylan was rolling on as pastoral assistant, we were at Starbucks and I was just like going for it, just talking, dreaming, creating, planning. And I could tell the longer I talked, the more and more Dylan got stressed out. And so by the end of the meeting, his eyes were huge, his ears were bleeding. I just had to stop and say, Dylan, what'd you hear me say? He's like, Gabe, we, we can't do all that you just said. Like, what are we gonna do? Um, and had nightmares about that over the next couple weeks until I had to explain, like, Dylan, I didn't actually mean we're going to do any of those. I'm just talking out loud. So, so often we have to have these experiences. We have to stop and say, real quick, what did you hear me say that led you to that conclusion? Maybe it's within a boss, a spouse, employer, anything like that. But a lot of our disagreements, our struggles, our fights that we have amongst ourselves and amongst one another Nine times out of 10 just comes out of a miscommunication. We deal with this all the time through premarital counseling. And what we're gonna see this morning, I think rather clearly, is that there's a massive misunderstanding that happens. That if God could have just come down and spoken to the Israelites and said, what, what is it that you heard me say that led you to this conclusion? I think would have offered a bunch of clarity for 
the Israelites. So Joshua, we're going to pick it up in chapter 13, verse 1. Joshua 13, verse 1. So quick recap. Joshua, born into slavery in Egypt, um, went to the wilderness as the Pharaoh let the people go and then came back to try to kill him. Was Moses' right-hand man. Joshua and Caleb, two of the spies, two of the twelve that went to check out the promised land, came back. They were all four. The other ten weren't. So they had to wander around in the wilderness for 40 years till that generation died off because of their disobedience to God, even though... Joshua and Caleb were obedient. Moses, all them died. Joshua leads them across the Jordan. We've been studying about all the warfare that take place as they're starting to possess the promised land. Two weeks ago, we talked about that the war is finished, it's done, it's over. And here's where we pick it up now. Joshua 13, we're going to pick it up in verse 1. Now Joshua was old and advanced in years, and the Lord said to him, You are old and advanced in years, and there remains yet very much land to possess. This is the land that yet remains. And there's this massive list that, uh, just for time, I'm going to skip over. So go down to verse 6. 6b, I myself, this is God speaking, I myself will drive them out from before the people of Israel. Only allot the land to Israel for an inheritance as I have commanded you. Now therefore divide this land as an inheritance to the nine tribes, nine and a half tribes of Manasseh. So what we're seeing here is two and a half tribes have already got their allotment before they cross over into the Jordan. Joshua is now old. Um, most theologians would agree he was around 100 years old at this point. And so now his task is to take this promised land and divide it out. Now, some of you might be thinking, hey, we ended chapter 12 with the massive saying the wars are now over. The fighting is now done. Why did God say there's more land to possess? Uh, Which is a valid question. So basically, the Israelites came into and and made camp right in the middle of the promised land. Uh, But they're going to continue working their way out. But we see in Deuteronomy and Leviticus that the way they're going to do that is to try to do it peaceably, try to live with these people. Um, The bloodshed and the war should be over. Now the people on the parameters of the promised land, as they take their um, inheritance and go out from there, they should try to live peaceably with them if at all possible. So we have Joshua, 100 years old, um, fulfilling what God told him in Joshua 1. Take the land and divide the inheritance. They've taken the land. Now he's here to divide the inheritance. Now, any readers in here, you just love to read, all about reading. Crowd participation is not great. All right, note to self, don't give people a bunch of biscuits and then ask them to be receptive. doesn't work. So I'm going to break a massive rule in the scheme of reading. Now I know you college, um, and maybe some of you seminary, maybe some of you slackers like me, you do this all the time. I want us to skip to Joshua chapter 21. So we read Joshua 13, let's skip to the end of Joshua 21, Uh, read how this ends for the Israelites, get the tail end of this, and then we're going to go back through and work through the middle. Sound good? I would not recommend this in your daily reading, but for now, this will make a lot of sense in a moment. Joshua 21, we're going to pick it up, just verse 43 through 45. Joshua 21, 43 through 45. I told someone before the service that this actually might be too much Bible in a sermon. They said, that's not possible. I said, I'll prove it. So we'll see what happens. Joshua 21, we're going to pick it up in verse 43. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers. And they took possession of it, and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. 
Not one, of all their, not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given them all their enemies into their hands. Verse 45. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. Let me read that one more time. Verse 45. Not one word of all the promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All had come to pass. So we've seen this theme over and over and over again within the book of Joshua, that God is faithful. God is faithful. Not one single word that he promised to them had failed. Some theologians call this the jugular vein of the Old Testament, that this is it. This is the whole premise of the book of Joshua. This is the whole premise of the Old Testament, the New Testament, the gospel, that not one word that God promises that says to us is ever going to fail, ever. But I'm sure we can all going to go, ah, but I have a story where I think God failed me. But, I, but, but Gabe, like, I know you read Joshua and like, that's the Bible and all, but, but listen to my story and tell me that God hasn't failed me. And what I want us to see this morning, we're going to look at four different snapshots of, of the inheritance being given out. And I think what we're going to see is that when we feel this, when some of the Israelites feel this, that God is not faithful, that God has failed us, we're acting on assumptions and presumptions of something that God never actually said. That if we truly understand the word of God and we press into what he's promised us, that we can truly worship, rejoice, and say, God is faithful. But when we take our preconceived notions into the nature and character of God, that's when we start to get upset. That's when we start to fail and say, God is not faithful because we have a misunderstanding. So this God is faithful theme that we've been developing should, in fact, draw worship out of us. Uh, one quote that I just love says this, Theology is always at its best when it includes dexology, when it cannot speak without the same time worshiping. So if you and I can sit in this room and talk about the faithfulness of God without that driving us into worship, driving us into praise, driving us into adoration, I will just lay before you, church, that we really understand God's faithfulness. Because every single one of us has lied to someone. And every single one of us had someone lie to us. We've broken promises and people have broken promises to us. So we have this one God, this one figure in our life that every single word he's ever spoken has come true, is coming true, and will come true. That should lead us to worship. That is different than any framework that we have. This should lead us into worship. And, and here's just kind of maybe putting the cart before the horse. We're going to see here that God's faithfulness, yes, we can all understand that when things go really, really south in our life, when things are going bad, we start to struggle with the faithfulness of God. I mean, just this week, I've had really heavy, weighty conversations with some of you in this room. I got a text yesterday morning that one of our students, she's moved on now, her father just passed away suddenly, never saw it coming. So I, I get it, church, in those waiting moments of life, wrestling and understanding, is God really faithful in this? How can a loving, good, honest, genuine God let this happen? I get that conversation, and we should have that conversation. But where the text is pointing us this morning is they're getting their inheritance. Things are good. I mean, they're getting all that they've worked for over the battles and battles and battles. God is evidently being faithful right in front of them and they miss it. 
So yes, can we counsel and work through God's faithfulness when things are bad? Yes, but I think one thing that binds us all together is that we constantly lose sight of God's faithfulness when things are really good. And when things are working well for us, when everything is good, awesome, incredible, do we still understand God's faithfulness in those moments? And I think we're going to see through the text. No, we don't. All right, so go back now to Joshua chapter 14. Like I said, there, there's so much here, and I encourage you guys to read all this. Every word from Scripture is important. It's God-breathed. We should read it and study it. Uh, but a lot of this is boundaries talk. It's as they're laying out the inheritance, here's what they get and here's where it is. And uh, it would just take a ton of time for us to go through all of that. So what we're going to do is just look at four different instances of God's inheritance coming to the people of Israel and seeing how they respond. So the first we're going to look at is Caleb, Joshua 14. We're going to pick it up in verse 6. Joshua 14, pick it up in verse 6. Then the people of Judah came to Joshua at Gilgal, and Caleb the son of Jephunneh and the Kezanite said, You know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God, in Kadesh Barina, concerning you and me, concerning Joshua and Caleb. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barina to spy out the land, and I brought him word again, again as it was in my heart. But my brothers who went up with me made the heart of the people melt. Yet I wholly followed the Lord my God, and Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land in which your foot has trodden shall be an inheritance for you and your children forever, because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. Verse 10. And now behold, the Lord has kept me alive, just as he said, these 45 years since the time the Lord spoke the word to Moses while Israel walked in the wilderness. And now behold, I am this day 85 years old. I am still as strong today as I was that day that Moses sent me, my strength now is as my strength was then, for war was going and coming. So now give me this hill country of which the Lord spoke on that day, for you heard on the day how the Anakim were there with great fortified cities. It may be that the Lord will be with me, and I shall drive out them as, drive out them as just the Lord said. Then Joshua blessed him and gave him Hebron to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the inheritance. Therefore Hebron became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, to this day, because he wholly followed the Lord God of Israel. So the first snapshot of inheritance we see is coming to Caleb. And I just really appreciate the, the confidence in Caleb. He said, look, this is what the Lord said, and I'm going to take it. So we see true faithfulness in God leads to confidence in God's words. True faithfulness in God leads to confidence in God's word. Five times, Caleb hammers this point home, that God promised, that God said. So this whole narrative that he's giving to Joshua, at some level, sounds like he's almost pleading or begging or trying to guilt trip Joshua into giving Caleb this land. But the reality is he's just saying what already happened. God said this to Moses. God said this to you. God said this to me. I'm going to take God's word serious, and I'm going to ask for it. So we always talk about faith. Do we have faith? Do we have faith? Um, what if I said, I have this stylish branch t-shirt. Y'all like this? Yeah, yeah, pretty cool. For sale over there, you should go get one. But what if I said, this shirt is for one of you? How would you know that to be true? How would I know that if you believe that? This shirt is for you. 
How do I know that you believe my words? Someone would walk up and get it. That if you truly believe that this shirt was for you, come get it, bro. This shirt's for you. Yeah? Do you believe me? Oh, the race is on. I mean, you just stole it from a lady, but that's on your conscience. <laughs> right? So, so we see that if we truly have faith in God's word, if we're saying God is faithful, that not a single word is going to come untrue, that faith requires action. Faith constantly requires action. That we can say, oh, God is faithful, God is good, but are we doing anything with that? Are we getting up to walk in to take this t-shirt for free, or are we just sitting there? Caleb was not just sitting there. He said, this is what God said, and this is what I want because of what God said. I know his words. I've memorized them. Joshua 1 talks about don't let the law come out of your mouth. Mutter it constantly. Keep it in front of you. And we see this is proof Caleb did. He kept it in front of him. James 1.18 would put it this way. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. So if we truly believe that God is faithful, that what he said is going to come true, then that has to lead us to action or else we don't believe God is faithful. If we truly believe that God is faithful, that everything he said will come true, then there's no way that we can be apathetic. We're going to be like Caleb going, you said this, let's go get it. I mean, we would, we would read Romans 8 and we would just live that out. What can man do to me? If God is for me, who can be against me? Let's go get it. Let's pursue it. Let's get after it. Let's be bold with our faith because God is faithful. And this is what his faithfulness looks like in me. A massive confidence in his words because he does not lie. He always tells the truth. Everything he says will come true. And we see that evident in Joshua. Or excuse me, Caleb. Now, flipping again. Go down to the end, Joshua chapter 19. We're going to look at what Joshua's inheritance looks like. So we see Caleb gets his inheritance because he trusted in God's faithfulness. He memorized God's faithfulness and he took it. And then we see Joshua, chapter 19. We're going to pick it up in verse 49. So if you're kind of paying attention, this is the tail end of the passage we're covering. Joshua 19, 49. And when they had finished, here's a key word here. When they had finished distributing the several territories of the land as inheritance, the people of Israel gave an inheritance among them to Joshua, the son of Nun, by command of the Lord that gave him the city he asked, Timonath, Syria, in the hill country of Ephraim. And he rebuilt the city and settled in it. All right, so let's just, let's just kind of put ourselves in Joshua's shoes here, lest we skip right over this. Here is Joshua. And Caleb mentioned it in his story, but here's Caleb, or Joshua, that is now a hundred, right? Best that we can see, Joshua passes away at 110, so he's 10 years away from his death. They finally conquered the promised land, but we see Caleb do it, we don't see Joshua do it. Joshua would have been 50 if they would have taken over the promised land the first time. He would have been around 50. Now, I'm just... Me being honest, maybe you can throw shade at me. That's okay. You do what you want to do. If my inheritance had been prolonged by 50 years because of the fools that I'm having to lead, I'm taking mine first. 
right? Well, if I had to put up with all you complainers, whiners, leading you through all this battle because you were disobedient 50 years ago, we finally get to the promised land, I'm taking my share first. I'm done with you. You've messed this whole plan up. I've only got about 10 years to live, so I'm not going to wait another day. Give me my inheritance first. Give it to me now because I, I want it. I'm tired of you guys. But what do we see from Joshua? That he is trusting in God's faithfulness, therefore it gives him a patient humility to wait for his. Did y'all catch that? Because he was so in tune with God's faithfulness that it developed a patience and humility in him that he's okay taking his inheritance last. Now, how many of us can say that honestly and truthfully? That we understand the promises of what God has for us and we're okay being patient and waiting for it. I mean, just patience And Americans, those words just don't coincide well together. But we see that Joshua was so in love with God to understand his faithfulness so completely that truly believed that none of his words would go away. So when God told Joshua in chapter 1, I'm going to give you land, he said, okay, it's going to happen. It's going to come. So I can take mine dead last. Let's get everyone else taken care of first. I'll take mine last because God's words will not return void. This is going to happen. So it doesn't have to be first. I I can wait. In in all humility, I'm going to put other people first. And and I'm going to get my share last. I'm I'm just going to wait. Because trusting God is faithful develops a patient humility in us. Now, we can just kind of do some juxtaposition in our own hearts. I I fight over the smallest things. I want what's mine now because I don't trust that God is faithful. I don't trust that he's providing for me. I don't trust any of that. I think I have to control it. God is not faithful. Gabe is faithful. I'm the only one that can take care of myself is the lie that we start to believe. And even when things are great, I'm not talking when things are bad, but things are great, we start to put more hope, more trust, more security in ourself and our words and less in God and his words. Which leads us to, here's two examples of men of God that were truly trusting and believing in God's faithfulness. But now look at, let's, let's look at two examples of tribes that weren't. Flip with me to Joshua 17. I've told you there's going to be a lot of flipping. No one tied, so that's on you. I'm just kidding. If you're new to the branch, I'm just joking. I'm sorry. Joshua 17, we're going to pick it up in verse 14. As we start to see that the tribe of Joseph, how they respond to God's faithfulness as they receive their inheritance. Joshua 17, we're going to pick it up in verse 14. Then the people of Joseph spoke to Joshua saying, Why have you given me but one lot and one portion as an inheritance, although I am a numerous people since all along the Lord has blessed me? All right, so let's just, real quick. They received their inheritance. They received all this promised land from God for free. And what is the first thing that comes out of their mouth? Grumbling. Complaining. Sound familiar? And Joshua said to them, If you are a numerous people, go up by yourselves into the forest, and there clear ground for yourselves in the land of the Parasites and the Rephim, since the hill country of Ephraim is too narrow for you. So Joseph goes, or Joshua says, I'm, I'm not, y'all do this. If you really have as many people as you say you do, then go cut down some trees and make more land for yourself. I'm done. 
but they keep going. Verse 16, the people of Joseph said, the hill country is not enough for us, yet all the Canaanites who dwell in the plain have chariots of iron, both those in Beth Shehan and the villages of those in the valley of Jezreel. Then Joshua said to the house of Joseph, to Ephraim and Manasseh, you are numerous people and have great power. So he's throwing their words right back in their face. You are numerous people have great power. You shall not have one allotment only, but the hill country shall be yours. For through it is a forest. You shall clear and possess it into its furthest bar- borders. Excuse me. For you shall drive out the Canaanites, they ha- though they have chariots of iron and though they are strong. All right, so let's just take a, take a breather for a second. How many of us can relate to this on a real level? God is faithful. He's giving something to us, and we immediately find all that's wrong with it. Oh, it's not big enough. Oh, the Canaanites are still there. Oh, like, God, how, how could you give that to us? But Joshua's kind of going, hey, look, uh, beggars can't be choosers. Right? Like this is, we've cast lots. This is by God's design that you would have this land. If you really have as many people as you say you do, go cut down some trees. Oh, but we can't cut down trees, Joshua. Like we don't have enough people. And it's not just the trees. You see they start to change their argumentation because they know their call. It's not just the trees, but it's the Canaanites. Like like they're going to kill us. And I could just see Joshua going, oh, brothers, do you not remember the last seven years when we've destroyed every army that came against us? Do you not think that the same God that was faithful then is going to be faithful today? Look back, brothers. Look back. God is faithful then. He will be faithful now. Do you not remember the word of God? And here's Deuteronomy. You don't have to flip here. Deuteronomy 20 verse 1 puts it so perfectly. When you go out to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army larger than you own, you shall not be afraid of them, for the Lord your God is with you, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. So this tribe of Joshua or Joseph knows this. They know that God can defeat all their enemies. They know that the, what God's words is true. When they see armies larger, when they see chariots, God is going to fight for them. God is going to go before them because God is faithful. But in this moment, they're not having it. In this moment, they're going, what, what is this? God is not faithful. He didn't give me what I asked for. And they quickly forget the promises that God had said. God didn't say you're going to get the exact land that you wanted. God said, I'm going to take care of all your enemies for you. Those are big differences. God didn't say you're going to get this exact allotment of the promised land, but God did promise that you're going to get part of the promised land. But they start to have comparison. I, mean, I, I think there's two things happening. I think there's a level of comparison, and I think there's a level, level of entitlement. They had seen the allotments that Caleb got. They had seen the allotments that the two and a half got on the other side of the Jordan. They were starting to compare what they got and less of what they, they have. And how many of us are guilty of this? That we measure God's faithfulness not by what God has promised us, but what others have gotten. That we start to compare and contrast. God is not faithful because I don't have what that person has. God can't be loving because if he did, I would have what that person has. Brothers and sisters, where is that in the scriptures? If we're going to accuse God of not being faithful, accuse God of not being just, we better have scripture to back that up. And that's where the entitlement piece comes in. That we think we deserve it. That we think we deserve it all. 
Like, I mean, I don't really cuss, and I don't like smoke, and I don't do this and that. Like, that person does all of that. I, I should get what they have. I'm a better person than they are. Look at me. Look at all the things I do well. Can you believe that person has this? Well, did God promise you that? No, God promised a lot of things. He promised the tribes, they promised Israel a lot of things, but this is not one of them. And so they have this free land that they can bog down into for life. This is theirs. They're no longer having to wander through the wilderness. They're no longer slaves of Egypt. This is their land. Enjoy it. And they're going, oh, but we got to cut down trees. I mean, as we're reading it back, doesn't it sound ridiculous? But if we apply that to our own life, what are we doing? God has provided so much for us, and we're going, oh, my gosh, but i got to cut down a tree. Come on, church, is God faithful or not? Has he provided for us or not? When we start to doubt God's faithfulness, our entitlement grows to comparison. God owes me this. And how do I know this? Because of what he's given to those around. The last one we're going to see is in Joshua 18. Joshua 18, I think this is maybe going to hit home for a lot of us. It has for me. And this is the remaining seven. The remaining seven that Joshua's giving the inheritance to. Joshua 18, we're going to pick it up in verse 2. There remained among the people of Israel seven tribes whose inheritance had not yet been appointed. So Joshua said to the people, How long will you put off going into the land to take possession, which the Lord God of your fathers has given you? So he's telling them how long. Joshua accuses the seven tribes of a dangerous laxity towards possessing the land. In the Hebrew, this verbal idea of being slack is a participle form and indicates a persistent action or attitude. Here, these seven tribes are dangerously close to letting go of all that God had given them. Did y'all hear that? Because of their laziness, these seven tribes were dangerously close to letting go of all that God had given them. I mean, do you not think that other tribes, that other nations were going to come in and try to rebuild some of these cities that they had just destroyed? I mean, they had such a small window. They've destroyed it. They've taken it over. But if they don't go in and possess it and rebuild the walls, who's going to come in and take it? Anyone. So because of their lack of trust in God's faithfulness, they were dangerously close to letting go all that God had done for them. Because of their laziness, they were dangerously close. Church, are we truly trusting in God's faithfulness or is our laziness dangerously close to letting go of all that God has given us and promised us? Here's a quote from H.L. Ellison. I think it'll be on the screen. The slackness blamed on Joshua may well have been due to an unwillingness to settle down. It was fine to have a promised land, but the reality showed the need for learning new skills and engaging in hard work. That is for many the disappointing side of God's gifts. They are always given that we may, have served, we may serve the better. Even his rest is linked with a yoke. So, so let's put some realities here. College students, if you're a college student in America, you're top 1% in the world. That you have the means and the resources to be in a university setting. That God has been so faithful to you by putting you in this time and place right now. 
Are you dangerously close of letting go of God's faithfulness by your laziness? I'll not pick on the college students. Careers. That God has given you the skills and the abilities and the time and the mindset to do the skills, to do the work that you are doing right now. Are we dangerously close because of our laziness to letting go of all God has given us and the faithfulness of God because we don't want to work for it? I mean, it just sounds ludicrous to me that these tribes have gone through battle after battle after battle, and the last step is to go in and rebuild it. It's yours. And they go, eh, I'm just going to hang out here for a little bit. And listen, it's, it's not just one. I mean, maybe that's the most sickening part of this. If it was just one tribe, we could go, oh, like those guys are idiots. It was seven, church. It was the majority of the tribes of Israel are sitting here with a lackadaisical attitude. God's faithfulness doesn't matter. I don't want to go work for it, so I'm going to sit here. Because they misunderstood the words of God. When we doubt God's faithfulness, we become lazy and self-centered. That God wouldn't actually make me go do this. I'm, I'm fine right here. So I think, I think there are a lot of things wrong with this picture. But I think if we went back and just really analyzed all that was taking place, there's two major themes that are happening, and we're going to spend only a few minutes on one. That they didn't know the Word of God. That they were holding God to a standard that He did not say. That all this controversy, that all this laziness, that all this doubting of God's faithfulness, not in word, but only in deed, comes out very clearly that they don't know what God promised them. They don't know what God said to them. They have a very dis disconnected idea of this. So we see eight out of the 12 tribes fall apart because they misunderstood God's faithfulness. Now, here's where this has to do with us. Let me just read a few statistics for you. Americans, this is all came out of George Gallup, the Gallup poll. Americans reveal the Bible by and large, but they don't read it. And because they don't read it, they have become a nation of biblical illiterates. So if we're seeing that Israel almost fell apart because they built an idea of God's faithfulness because they didn't actually understand God's words, are we that church? Are we Israel that is falling apart from the inside because we're frustrated, doubting, or not pursuing God and his faithfulness because we actually don't know God's words? So here's some statistics for you. Fewer than half of all adults can name the four Gospels. Fewer than half of all adults can name the four Gospels. Many Christians cannot identify more than two or three of the disciples. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are not all disciples. Gospels, not disciples. 60% of Americans can't even name five of the Ten Commandments. Well, okay, Blake, like that's, that's people outside of the church. Okay. 82% of Americans think that God helps those who help themselves is a Bible verse. 82%. God helps those who help themselves. Which we know is contradictory to all of Scripture. If we could help ourselves, then why did Christ have to suffer and die? If we can fix ourselves. So surely the church is a lot better at that, right? 81% of the church believes that. 82% of the world, or Americans, believe that God helps those who help themselves contradictory to all of the gospel. But 81% of the church believes that. A majority of adults think that Bible teaches that most important purpose in life is taking care of one's family. 
Here's a crazy one. At least 12% of adults believe that Joan of Arc was Noah's wife. I could kind of see it. I mean, I could, yeah. I'm not going to throw too much shade at that one. Uh, free t-shirt for anyone that can actually tell me Noah's wife. All right. We can come back to it later. I didn't know it until I went and walked around the big ark. Another survey of graduating high school seniors revealed that over 50% thought that Sodom and Gomorrah were husband and wife. A considerable number of respondents to one poll indicated that the Sermon on the Mount was preached by Billy Graham. Now, some of these are funny, and I agree, but are we starting to see the issue here? That if we don't know the words of God, can, how can we trust God is faithful? If we don't know the Bible, church, then we're going to start to have this massive, ideal version of a God in the heaven that does not exist. That if we think God's ultimate purpose is our happiness, then we're going to be severely disappointed. And if we knew our Bibles, we'd know that's just not true. So how can we not be like eight of the 12 tribes of Israel that just miss it? How can we be like Caleb and Joshua that have such a confidence in God's faithfulness that they just sit back and relax knowing that God is going to provide? Here's just some lies that because of the ideas of biblical illiteracy, here's some lies that we believe and just a few scriptures to prove those wrong. The more troubles we have, the less faithful God is. And at some point in most of our lives, we believe that. The more troubles we have, we think God is not faithful, we think God is not good, that we think that if God was a good, faithful, loving God, we would not have these problems. But here's two scriptures to totally disprove that. John 16, 33. I've said these things, things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. You will have trials. Things will end badly for you. Majority of the disciples were martyred. Where do we get this idea that if God is for us and loves us, then everything's going to end up perfectly? We're never going to have any trials. John 15, 20, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So church, listen, God is not unfaithful. God is not unjust. God is not unloving if you're going through a really, really hard time. Because Jesus was murdered for something he didn't commit. And it might come for us, but that has not changed the faithfulness of God. God never told us that if you follow me, everything's going to be perfect. Your life is going to be great and grand. It's not what the Bible tells us. Another lie that we believe that God's major concern is my happiness. What God most wants for me is my happiness. That worship isn't about God, it's about me. There's not too many times where I just blast people from the stage. But listen, Joel Osteen's wife literally said that. Stop listening to them. That God's ultimate happiness, worship is not about you, it's about me and how it makes me feel because what God wants me to be is happy. Stop that. Isaiah 43, 6-7. I will say to the north, give up and to the south. Do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name who I created for my glory whom I formed and made. God's first concern is not your happiness, it's his glory. We have to understand that. We have to worship in that. We have to marvel at that. If God's ultimate concern was my happiness, then God would be making an idol out of me and an idol out of you, and he would no longer be God. 
So God's first concern is not our happiness, church, and that is the best thing for us. Here's another popular lie that we believe. God will not give us more than we can handle. We've heard that, we've seen that, we've written that in our journals, we might have a t-shirt on it, that God will not give us more than we can handle. And at first glance, this might seem correct. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So is God going to give you more than you can handle? Yes. That's what's going to push you into Christ. That's what's going to draw you into him. One of God's mechanisms for deepening the intimacy he has with you is giving you more than you can handle. Because if you think you could do all your life on your own, by yourself, that God's not going to give you anything more than you can handle, then again, why do we need God? Why do we need God to persevere us? Why do we need God to encourage us? Why do we need God to shepherd us? If we can handle this all on our own, then why then do we need God? So he's going to overload you, church. There's going to come the darkest seasons of your life when you're literally crying out, I cannot do this. And in those moments is we're going to find the ultimate faithfulness of God displayed. So is he going to give you more than you can handle? Yes. So we've covered some of the lies. Let me, let me maybe come over to the truth as we start to wrap up. And his promises are endless, church. I couldn't pick, I mean, I had to pick, but it was really difficult just to kind of go through these. But here's the promises that we should hang our hats on. Here's some of the metrics that we should understand. Is God actually faithful? Here's his promises that we can hold him to. He speaks through his word. That His word is sufficient. Hebrews 4.12 for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing through the divisions of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Psalm 18:30. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who have taken refuge in him. So do we want to know God and do we want to know his promises? Get in his word. Because every page of this is truth. Do we want to know his promises? Do we want to know that God is faithful? We can see it clearly in his word. The second promise I just want us to hang our hat on is found in Hebrews 13, 5 through 6. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he had said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me that he will never leave us, that he will never forsake us. There's never been a moment by yourself that Christ has been with you, he sent the Holy Spirit to be in you, that you are yours and his. One of the craziest things of our four pregnancies was my wife's statement that when she was pregnant, every time she was pregnant, one of the most beautiful things about that was because she felt like she was never alone. There was never a moment in those nine months that she felt alone. Now, if that's just a little fetus that can do nothing on its own, apart from us holding them and feeding them and taking care of them, what is it like to have the spirit, the helper inside of us, guiding us everywhere which we should go? That we are literally never alone. That God is faithful, that his promises are true, that he's breathing in us. And the last one that I want us to see, if you have your Bibles, flip with me to Romans 8.
Romans chapter 8, we're going to pick it up in verse 39, excuse me, 35. What are the promises, what are the things of God that we should hang our hat on, that we should gauge all of God's faithfulness to us? Romans 8, we're going to pick it up in verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Verse 37, no, in all these, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is the promises that we should hold God to. That is the faithfulness of God, that none of those words will ever fail that every promise that he just said in Romans 8 will be true now and forever, that he will never leave us, he'll never forsake us, that nothing can separate us from the love of our Father. That is the true gospel that we should hang our hats on, that forget our inheritance, forget all that we have or what we don't have, that if we have Christ in him, that is enough, that he owes us nothing else. He never owed us Christ, but he has given us Christ to reconcile us to him, and that is enough. There's one last tribe in Israel that just blew my mind as I was studying. Because as you read through, and I hope you do, 13 through 21, the tribe of Levi comes up often. They keep coming up almost every time a land gets discussed, the tribe of Levi comes up. And Joshua 13, 33 is one example. But to the tribe of Levi, Moses gave no inheritance. The Lord God of Israel is their inheritance. Did y'all catch that? So Israel... Is broken up, but the tribe of Levi gets none of it. And we'll see in chapter 20 that they get cities to live in, but they put in these cities not to take conquest of them, not to rule them, but to teach the covenant, to teach the law, to shepherd the people well. So if anyone should scream out about God is not faithful, God is not trust, God is not good, it should be the tribe of Levi. Everyone else got inheritance, where's mine? But scripture is clear, they've got theirs. They have God. They have a relationship with God. That they are his, that our inheritance should be, and we should be satisfied with Christ and Christ alone. So forget all the turfish things. Forget about this or that, or I don't have this, or I don't have that, or God, you said this, or God, you said that. Most of that is all false. That Christ is enough. And can we say that? Can we, do we actually believe that? I mean, is, is that beating in our hearts? God is faithful because he has given us Christ. We get him and that is enough. That's why we end every gathering. That's why we're about to walk into communion together. Because I'm not going to sit up here and say, and you're going to have an incredible day today. Because that's not promised. Romans 8 said they were being killed all the day long. I don't know what's going to happen to us today. But the fact that we get to sit here and worship Christ, who has become an ambassador for us, that we can be made whole with God because of the atonement that Christ has made for us. That we get to walk over there in a minute and celebrate his body, which is broken for us, his blood that was spilled out for us. That means God is faithful. If for nothing else, 
that God has saved us, he has rescued us, and he has redeemed us through his son's body and blood on the cross. Then what else matters, church? We, ha- we get Christ, and Christ is enough. So for us this morning, where do we feel like God has not been faithful? Where are we like the tribes of Joseph and the seven others? Well, if we're just being honest and say, man, God blew it on this thing. God was not faithful here. I'm living in this right now that if God really loved me, if God was really faithful, he would take care of this and this and this and this. What, what is that that's stirring up in us? And is there scripture to prove it? Because I'm urging us, as we take communion, God is faithful. He's faithful and just to forgive all of our sins. So let us pray together. Father, as we prepare our hearts for communion, as we get ready to to celebrate what you've done for us, as you've broken your body, as you've spilt out your blood for us, Father, would that become the main thing in our lives? That we might doubt, that we might not see your faithfulness right now in this moment for everything else, but we can cling to the cross. And we can believe that if you love us, and if you're for us to the point of sending an innocent man to die for us, then you are faithful. That you are to be worshipped, that you are to be praised. God, let us not be like the tribes of Joseph, that we're just comparing ourselves to everyone around us that we felt this a sense of entitlement, that if they got that, we deserve that because we're better than them. So let us not impose those things on you because you never promised that to us. Did you promise that, that we are yours if we have been saved, if we've been baptized into you, if you've redeemed us, that we are yours and that there's nothing that can separate us from that. Father, let us not be like the other seven tribes that just in our laziness, are in danger of losing all that you've blessed us with. That you've brought us to this point and now we're just sitting there doing nothing with all the blessings that you've given us. That we want it all for ourselves, that we're not making any gospel impact or impact in our communities for what you've so readily blessed us with. But in our laziness, we're just sitting there refusing to keep going. Father, let us be like Caleb that approaches the throne with confidence. Here's what you said, God, and I'm holding you to it because God is faithful. Let us be like Joshua that has a patience and a humility because you have not failed him yet and you will not fail him now. God, you have not failed us yet and you will not fail us now. So let us have a patience and a humility about us understanding that it's your time and it's not ours, but you are faithful. So church, as we sit here and examine our hearts, the question is simple. Where do you believe God is not faithful? What has happened or not happened that's allowing you to doubt the goodness and the faithfulness of God? That if we define God's faithfulness as upholding every single word that he's ever said, what has God clearly spoke to you in scripture that he's not upholding? And I would plead with you to look at the cross, to 
Look at the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him was murdered. That God is faithful. Let us not squander or waste all the blessings that the Father has given us, but let us run the race with endurance, knowing that you are for us, that you're not against us, and there's much work to do here. So let us use this time to to repent before our Father for some of the accusations that we've laid on him for some of the frustrations that we've had on him when he never said it. He never promised those things. And let us cling to the promises that he has said, that he has promised, because he is faithful. So Father, it's only through your son that we can speak to you. Thank you for loving us when we didn't deserve it. We don't deserve it. Thank you for making us sons and daughters when we were at enemies to you. Thanks for being ever faithful to us. It's your name we pray, amen.
So I'll leave us in this moment of prayer. The band's gonna start to play a little bit. And, and when you've asked the Spirit, once you've spent time praying for that temptation, communion is open for all the believers in the room whenever you're ready. And then we'll celebrate, we'll worship the King that has not left us here to figure this out on our own but the one that knew we couldn't so sent a savior for us. So let us sit and consider and ponder where we are being tempted, where we're falling short, and leave that at the foot of the cross.